And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. And in the light of him, Lord, really, where else can we go but to him? He is, uh, he is the one through whom you provided all that we need for life and godliness. And what else can we do, Lord, but to continue to run to you always and run to him? And Lord, we, as we look to your word now, we, we again express our desire to run to you, to run to Jesus. Show us more of Christ this morning. Uh, help us to understand your word. Help us understand uh, who you are and what you desire of us. May we be the kind of people that reflect uh, Jesus in our world. And may, uh, may your spirit teach us and guide us into your truths, we pray. Thank you, Father, for all this possibility to worship you in, in the word. And I thank you for your spirit and thank you for Jesus that makes it even possible. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me this morning to the book of Numbers again, Numbers chapter 6. And we're going to look at verses uh, 1 through 21, Numbers 6, 1 through 21. And uh, today we see it, the, it's the, titled The Vow of a Nazarite, The Vow of a Nazarite, Numbers chapter 6. All right. We're moving along, making good uh, headway into this book. Uh, hopefully it's been an encouragement to you, and uh, hopefully it's been a blessing as uh, in a, you know, to say very, um, uh, a book that we may not study too often, but I hope really uh, as you come away from this book that you really do see uh, how much the scriptures point to Jesus and many of the things in, in numbers uh, uh, that as we were looking at uh, just remind us uh, of, of, of Jesus Christ. All right. Uh, let me go back to the book of Exodus first. In Exodus chapter 19, it was... Uh, Three months after Israel had left Egypt, they left slavery in Egypt, been delivered by, uh, through, by God through Moses, and they had traveled and wandered, and they crossed the, uh, the Red Sea, and they, they wandered until three months later, they arrived in the, the wilderness of Sinai, the desert of Sinai. And God called Moses then to go up to him on Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was where he had seen, met the Lord before the first time when he saw the, the burning bush. And there on Mount Sinai, Basically, three months. It was the it was the first time that the people of God were being exposed to the Lord. Up to this point, they had been uh, they had been uh, four hundred years or four hundred thirty years slavery in Egypt. They they had they had really lost. Uh, they had not much concept of who God was, except what was passed on orally to them. And now they got to see at least God's you know uh, the manifestations of God uh, on the on the mountain, and they get to hear the word from God. Uh, for really the first time for most all these people's lives, except what had been passed on to them from their parents. So a significant moment. This, was, this took place, this is Exodus 19. It's right before the, the Ten Commandments are given. And you know how important the Ten Commandments are in Exodus 20. So these are the words that the Lord has to say to Moses. Listen to his words. Exodus 19, verses 3 through 6. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel." And so 
These are the first words that the Lord speaks to Moses to speak to Israel, even before the Ten Commandments. It's like the, it's like the preface to its introduction to what he's about to say. And he wants to remind them that I've delivered you, therefore you are mine. I've delivered you out of Egypt, you're mine, and I've chosen you. If you keep my covenant, then, you know, I, then you're going to be my people. You're going to be for a, a people from my own possession. And most significantly, he tells them, you're going to be a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. I'm going to set you apart from all the other nations of the world. They all belong to me, but I set you apart, Israel. I've chosen you so you would be a kingdom of priests. That, and, and at this point, there was no Levitical priesthood, right? So, but the only priesthood they knew really was what they'd probably seen in Egypt and how the priests in Egypt, the Egyptian priests, would have served as uh, mediators, intermediaries between uh, their, their various, the pantheon of gods as well, uh, with the people. They wouldn't be the ones, the, the mediators. And so they had that kind of concept that the, of this a nation of priests that wouldn't be interceding or mediating between God and mankind. God was calling them to be a kingdom of priests. God was calling them to receive his blessings and that through them would then be exp, exp, uh, share that blessings with the rest of the world and all the families of the earth uh, in the terms of, uh, of the Abrahamic covenant. And so they were to be, since they were to be his instruments, they were to be a holy nation, holy people set apart for, for God's use. They were chosen by him for a holy purpose. And so it's not surprising then that from Exodus 20 and on all the way, uh, well, even into Numbers today, through Leviticus and even Numbers, we see God giving instructions to Israel of how they are to be a holy nation, a holy people, got to be instruments of God. We'd already seen a lot, and we, we see, we kind of, in the Numbers, we've already seen a little bit of that by God's instructions to the priests. Even how you carry the, the, the elements of the tabernacle needs to be done in a certain way, a certain kind of manner, unless you die. Because God is holy, and his things are holy. How much more are the people, his people, who are called to serve him? They're to be a holy people. And so God continues to teach Israel all about this life of holiness in the book of Numbers. He teaches them about holiness because he's preparing them to enter into the promised land. We're in the promised land they are then going, having received all the, the, the blessings of that promised Abraham, the land, and that mighty nation, they're going to then expand that blessing, to share that blessing uh, from the Lord, the, the blessing of salvation uh, through faith in him to the families of the earth. So in today's passage, we learn then, uh, and God gives instructions, this very important instruction in that context of, this is what you need to know about holiness. He gives this instruction about the law of, of the Nazarite, or the law of a Nazarite. A Nazarite was an Israelite who especially devoted themselves, or himself, or herself, uh, it could be a man or woman, to serve the Lord for a specific period of time. That they would just give themselves completely. Now, it's just like, it was almost like the priests, where the priests had to give their lives completely to the Lord. Now, but someone could choose to do that, voluntarily do that, for a set period of time. And so the law of the Nazarite that God gives here in Numbers chapter 6 uh, serves to teach the people of God about what it looks to have a life of holiness. What is involved in a life of holiness? Now, as the people of God today, you and I, the, the church, we just read in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, 9, that we too are a holy nation. A lot of these same words are used for the church of, the church of Jesus Christ as well. It's you and me. We're to be a holy nation as well. 
And so therefore, we're going to learn from this law of the Nazarite several lessons that equip you and me, followers of Christ, to be the people of God that live and manifest a life of holiness as as this holy nation that he's called us to be so that we can fulfill the purposes for which he has saved us and called us. Um, So Numbers chapter 6, Follows after Numbers one to four, that great census of the of the all the priests of all the soldiers of uh, of, of Israel, and then chapter five we saw how this, God gave them instructions about how to handle when when defilement enters into the camp, so that they will not allow sin to defile them. And now number six, we come to this place where God talks about well, this is what it looks like if you especially devote yourself to the Lord. Okay. And we're going to, as for an outline today, we're going to see three, divides into three sections, three aspects of the law of the Nazarite that teach the people of God about a life of holiness. So you and I want to uh, live a life of holiness. Uh, now, keep in mind that uh, the law of the Nazarite was for the Israelites. You know, it's, it's not meant for the church today. Uh, it, you can do this if you really want to, uh, but it is not going to necessarily uh, make you a Nazarite. Uh, this is something that was given to Israel at that time. Uh, but it is, nevertheless, there are principles here that will give us instruction about what it looks like for us today as the Church of Christ to live a life of holiness, okay? All right, so let's take a look at aspect number one, found in verses one through eight, and this is the, the stipulations of a life of holiness. There are certain requirements, requisites, that God expects of anyone who would willingly, voluntarily give their life, devote their life to service of the Lord, And we read this in verses 1 through 8 of Numbers chapter 6. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, so this is the the word of God. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation, he should not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine from the seeds even to the skin. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall let the locks of his hair on his head grow long. All the days of his separation to the Lord, he should not go near to a dead person. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother, for his brother or for his sister when they die because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. So what we find here then, these are the Lord's instructions for the nation Israel about the vow of a Nazarite. And in verse 2, we see this verse 2 gives us a lot of general uh, information, instructions, principles about this particular vow. First of all, we learned that this vow was a, is a general vow. It's, it was not limited to any particular person. It was open to anyone. You could be a, a man or a woman could make this vow. And presumably any man or woman out among any of the 12 tribes of Israel could make this vow. It was open to anyone. Whereas the priests were limited to just the tribe of Levi. It was limited to men, uh, much like even office elders or Elders and overseers and pastors, they are limited men. But the Nazarite as a, was, someone, was, was a vow that any Israelite can make. Number two, this not only was, though it is a general vow, it's also, though, a special vow. Though anyone could make it, not everyone did. In fact, very few did, as we kind of just even look at the, the, the preponderance of all the scriptures. 
considering the Bible, we really only have a handful of times where uh, the na- reference to Nazarites are made, and some are just simply implied. But uh, the three most popular Nazarites, or the most well-known Nazarites in the Bible, would be uh, Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. Thirdly, we learn that this vow that's made, this law of the vow of the Nazarite, is a, is a voluntary vow. It's not something that they are made to make, but it's when they choose to make a special vow. It's their own choice. It's of their own volition. Think of the priests. The priests, could they choose to be a priest or not? No. They, they were, by the very nature of their birth, were, were called by God, set apart by God, to you know, basically to replace every firstborn son of Israel to serve him. They were set apart for him, holy but here is a vow. Here's someone who could voluntarily serve the Lord of their own volition. It's a, it's a voluntary vow. Fourthly, it's a vow of a dedication to the Lord. Uh, this, is a, this vow is one that is, is a vow to dedicate oneself to the Lord. The word, uh, the noun translated Nazarite here, the vow of a Nazarite, actually the, it's tr- directly translates the Hebrew word Nazir, Nazir. And uh, it comes from the verb nazer, which uh, so it's all similar. It's the uh, same uh, uh, same root word, meaning to dedicate, to consecrate, to separate. So a nazrite was literally one who was dedicated, one who was consecrated, one who was separated. In this case, particularly to the Lord, it's one who is set apart for the Lord. It's one who is wholly set apart for God. Fifthly, we learn that it's a sacrificial vow. The individual doesn't just, uh, this vow is not just a, a vow to give some money. It's not just a vow, that I'm going to volunteer some time when I, when I can make it. Uh, I'm not going to vo- volunteer to give this, the first animal that comes out of my house, you know, uh, when I get home, as Jephthah did. It's not just a, a, a kind of a passing, temporary, a part, a, a, a simple, uh, a singular offering. This offering was a sacrificial offering of one's whole life. A whole, their whole life is given to the Lord. The individual devotes himself or herself completely. It's a complete t- commitment and devotion of one's life. Instead of lives lived for their own, own self, oneself, they, the Nazarite lived his or her life completely for the Lord. They gave themselves to, to assist in the Lord's work. They would, main, they would not have been like priests and Levites allowed to enter the tent, into the, the, the tent of meeting, but they would have assisted you know, the, the, the Levites in whatever way that they needed. In verses 3 to 7, then, we move on from the, the general nature of the vow to the specific requirements of one who makes such a vow, the requisites, the, the necessities. And then we see three. In verse three to four, we see the first. The Nazarite, the one who makes the vow of a Nazarite, must or will abstain from wine and strong drink. You're not going to drink. You're not going to drink alcohol. And, when, and this was very similar uh, to when the priests served in the tabernacle. When they would serve, they were instructed by God uh, that they were forbidden to drink wine or strong drink as well. But that was only when they served in the temple. When they left the temple, when they went home, they, they could drink wine and alcohol. But now, God says, so this now, you make a vow of Nazarite, you can never take any wine or strong drink. And keep in mind, the wine and strong drink was a common drink because that was the, the, it was a way that uh, the water was oftentimes impure and having uh, fermented the alcoholic water, it was a way to kind of keep the water you know, uh, uh, clean enough for you to drink. So it was a, there was a, definitely a, a sacrifice there. 
but the Nazarite vow goes even further. It's not just able to, you're not just prohibited from drinking wine or strong drink, but you're prohibited from drinking anything even related to it. You couldn't even drink any vinegar. You couldn't even drink, drink any grape juice, you know? You'd have to, you know, if you were, had this vow today, you, you couldn't drink the grape juice that we pass out for communion, you know? Say, oh, no, I'm, I, I'm taking a vow of, Na- I made a vow of Nazarite, you know? You couldn't even, you couldn't even eat dried, you couldn't even eat dried grapes, raisins, you know, those you like sun-made, you can't eat that. You like uh, grapes? I love grapes. Grapes are one of my favorite fruits. You can't eat that. You can't even eat the, the skin off the raisin, <laughs> the grape, or the seed. Remember the seed? All the times we spit that stuff out, you can't even eat that. That's how holy God is. God, by setting this standard so high, it's not that, by the way, it's, it's not that the wine or strong drink or seeds or the, or the grapes or the raisins and things like that, or vinegar, it's not that they themselves have some holy attribute or some polluting attribute because wine is a blessing from God meant to be given so that the people of God may celebrate. It often was involved in a lot of the offerings. And, but the fact is, God sets this, these rituals, these rituals, as a sign of the high standard to which he calls them, uh, these, the Nazarites, to, be, to live to. Of course, wine and strong drink do have a very practical effect. Uh, they do have a practical effect of, of clouding one's judgment. And there is that practical element that certainly must be a part of it. And there's, we see that in the Proverbs often. Warning, we see, even in Ephesians 5.18, uh, do not be filled with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, right? Be filled with the Spirit. Don't, don't get drunk with wine. Okay? Don't let wine or strong drink control you. Uh, let the Spirit of God control you as those who are set apart for the Lord. Um, <clears throat> the Nazarite was to abstain completely from wine or drink or anything related as a symbol of their holy dedication to the Lord. Secondly, uh, in verse 5, there's a second kind of restriction or a requirement. The Nazarite was to abstain from cutting their hair. Uh, and this was, this was applied to both men and women quite equally. Uh, so you basically just have to grow your hair out. And f- certainly for, for many women, it may not be noticeable if they're growing their hair out, but once it gets down to there, it's, well, it's pretty noticeable. But for a man, you know, well, you know, it's, uh, within a few weeks, it's pretty noticeable that, uh, that your hair is long. So it would be a very visible kind of identifying mark of, a, of someone who is taking the vow of a Nazarite. Now, according to uh, Jewish commentary, uh, this Jewish, uh, a particular Jewish commentary, growing hair was a, is a symbol of l- the life of a person. It was a symbol of life, just like hair constantly grows. Uh, it's a symbol of one's life. And so to not cut one's hair was another picture of the devotion that this hair is not just going to be thrown away. This hair is going to be li- representing my life. is going to be lived, grown out, lived wholly for the Lord. Then there's lastly, there's a third requirement, and then we see this in verse 6 to 7. The Nazarite was to avoid dead persons. Now, we see already seen this in, back in chapter 5, the, 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 that to be exposed to someone who was dead made one ritually unclean. Uh, and, and the whole, all the rituals of cleanness, this was a, God's way of teaching a man Israel about sin uh, in their life, to not be defiled by sin. It's the, definitely death only exists because of sin. Remember that? So... So, whenever, so the, the, the Nazarite was to be avoid dead people because it would make him uh, richly unclean and require, in a, uh, in a world where death existed, think about this. This is, a, this is a time when there weren't, you know, funeral homes. We, we hide, in America, we, we hide death really well. Uh, when people die, they're immediately whisked away. They're, they're taken to the, the morgue, the funeral home. Uh, if they're in the hospital, a lot of people die in the hospitals. But in, 
when you're wandering in the wilderness, there's no you know hospitals. There you know there might be uh, things, but most people like got sick and died in their homes, in their tents. It would have been very visible. It was uh, not something that you could avoid really, uh, with two million people wandering around. And so it was quite common that people would become defiled by exposure to someone in their family dying, uh, and then being ceremonially unclean for seven days. This was. The defilement from uh, exposure to a dead person was something that even priests were required to, to observe. They were not allowed to defile themselves for, for anyone except for some close relatives. But the high priest, according to Leviticus 21.10, was not even allowed to defile themselves even for their father, his father or his mother. That's, how, that's the calling of the high priest. And that is the same calling, the same requirement for the Nazarite as well. So then even the vow of the Nazarite is, is a, even the, the requirement is even above that of the regular priest, but equivalent with that of the high priest. The Nazarite's vow called them to a life of holiness where they could not even mourn the life of the, or the passing of their father, their mother, their brother or sister as often would be, as would be normal. It reminds me of Jesus when, when that one male man came up to him and says, Oh, Lord, I want to follow you, but let me first bury my father. You remember that? And what did Jesus say to him? Well, he says, Let the dead bury the dead, and you follow me. And there's a very radical statement that Jesus has there. And it, it's only, it's, it just dawned on me that number six really speaks to that. That, man, that God, Jesus was teaching them, If you want to follow me, you have to be completely, wholly devoted to me even calling from radical discipleship. So the Nazarite's vow, and reflected by these requirements, um, reflected that they were called to live a life of holiness. And uh, God, because God is holy, whom they have devoted themselves to serve. In each of these ways, um, uh, the abstaining from drink, the abstaining from cutting one's hair, the uh, abstaining from the dead, all emphasize their separation from that which these things which are really common things the world normally participates in, the rest of the people where it, it emphasized their separation from even that which is, uh, others might enjoy for the service, for their service to the Lord. It emphasizes their separation to God. They're, and the separation really is, is a key word in this chapter. It's, it's, uh, it's separate, the word separation we see here is, again, the, uh, a, a form of the word nazir, nazir, and it shares all the same roots. And another word for separation really is holiness. When you're separated, when you're set apart, you are holy. You're set aside for God, for God's use. In fact, eight, verse 8 summarized really in this way. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. The Nazarite is someone who is holy to the Lord. And the vow of the Nazarite and the stipulations for a life of holiness was given as a visual picture then of what God called Israel to be. Because remember, even though the Nazarite would specially be devoted to the Lord and they're called to be separate, to, to be holy, but God had called Israel in Exodus 19 to be holy already. You're going to be a holy nation. And God, by giving them the laws of a Nazareth, was reminding them, or teaching them, that this is what's demanded of holiness. This is what holiness is going to look like. That you're going to be, you must be holy, and you must be wholly devoted to the service of the Lord. And certainly, God gives it because Israel is not that, would not be that. 
And not everyone would make the vow of a Nazarite, but every Israelite was called to be holy. And just like every Israelite was called to be holy, every Christian, you and me, as followers of Christ, are called to be holy. Now, what do we do to be holy? Do we, do we make a vow? Do we uh, don't drink wine or alcohol? I remember when I was a young Christian, I mustered my spirituality by the fact that I, I no longer drank wine and alcohol, you know, because I was saved out of that kind of life. Oh, I'm holy because I don't drink alcohol anymore. Do you think that really made me holy? Is it holy because I don't cut my hair? I let it grow long. Oh, you, you're really spiritual. Look how long your hair is, you know. Is, is am I holy because uh, I, I just don't go around dead people? Uh, no, I'm not going to mourn for my mom or dad because they passed. Does that make you holy? No, none of these things in and of themselves make you holy. They're part of the rituals that God gave them. But for you and me, and, and, and keep in mind, uh, our Lord and Savior did not observe these things. He made water into wine. He, uh, he, we don't see any record of him not cutting his hair. Uh, we uh, find him, instead of avoiding the dead, touching the dead, raising them from the dead, giving them life. And Jesus was the holiest man on the walked on the face of the earth. Our holiness does not come from rituals. Certainly these rituals were to be observed by faith that made them pleasing to the Lord. But for the New Testament saints, we who are called to a life of holiness, we who are to be a holy nation, have a different kind of standard. I love what Romans 12.1, how Romans 12.1 guides us in, this, in thinking. Romans 12.1 says this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We're to present our bodies, our, our lives, as a living and a holy sacrifice, not a, like an offering that would need to be killed, but live our lives holy, acceptable to God, which is, and that's how we worship the Lord. But how does that happen? Verse 2, I wish I'd put it up. It's by not being conformed to the world, not following what the world does. You, you know, if you're really good at following the world, you're probably not very good at walking in holiness. Not to say that the world doesn't have good things, we do, but if we're consumed by following whatever the world is doing, whatever the world is, uh, uh, is how they're living, want to be relevant with the world and all the time and want to be just like the world, then that is usually not the road to holiness. A road to holiness generally is to not be conformed to the world, but to be in store, to be transformed. We're to be metamorphosized. We're to be a little different. We're to stand out in some way. By the, and how do we be transformed to be different? By the renewing of our minds. By our, our mind, our thoughts, our attitudes. It begins in our mind through the, the word of God. And then when our minds are transformed, then it affects us, it gives us this ability to prove what the will of God, that is to, to, to live out the word of God, to show that God's will is perfect and good to the rest of the world who doesn't think his will is good at all. That's how we live holy lives. We live in such a way, we live according to God's ways so that people see us and so that they see Christ. But this is what God's cut, and this is what God calls his people to do today. But then and now, as well as now, we sometimes, dare I say oftentimes, fail to live a life of holiness. And that leads us to our second aspect of the law of the Nazarite. The law of the Nazarite where the situation where the Nazarite actually breaks their vow in some way. We see this as, I call this the restoration to a life of holiness. In verse 9 to 12, restoration to life of holiness. 
Let's pick up in Numbers chapter 6. Uh, the, and God says this to Moses, But if a man dies very suddenly beside him, and he defiles his dedicated hair, head of hair, then he shall shave his head on the day when he becomes clean. He shall shave it on the seventh day. Then on the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest, to the doorway of the tent of meeting. The priest shall offer one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering and make atonement for him concerning his sin because of the dead person. And that same day he shall consecrate his head and shall dedicate to the Lord his days as a Nazarite and shall bring a male lamb, a year old, for a guilt offering. But the former days will be void because his separation was defiled. The situation here is a situation where that might arise in the life of a Nazarite. You know, they, they could probably, you know, not cut their hair, and they could probably uh, find a way not to make sure they don't drink wine. But, but something that might accidentally or incidentally happen to them is that maybe they're serving alongside with a fellow Nazarite, and the, the Nazarite just falls over dead and, uh, or, you know, in the course of their, their duties. And, and therefore, they become unclean. They become defiled is the, is the, is the, the biblical word. And so in that case, after a period of seven days, seven days I need to pass for the, uh, for the, um, for, for the cleansing. And then, and by the way, this would be presumably outside the clamp, if we uh, remember Numbers 5. The Nazarite would then, uh, would then return and would then shave off his or her hair. Remember, that's part of the vow, right? The vow of the Nazarite is to let your hair grow. No, don't cut it. But because there was a, a violation of, uh, of the vow, breaking of the vow, after seven days of cleansing, the Nazarite would then have to shave off his or her hair, completely shave it off, uh, bald. Presumably, the, since the hair was a symbol of one's dedicated life, the defilement meant that he or she must start over again by cutting it off and growing it anew. But that's not all. It's not just cutting the hair, as drastic as that is already. As a very visible kind of uh, a visible transformation or change that must take place, but then there needs to be sacrifices offered. And by the way, it's not just one or two, but three sacrifices need to be made. First of all, uh, it's sacrifices either of, of two turtle doves or two young pigeons need to be purchased. Those were the most inexpensive inexpensive offering of blood that could be made. And one, uh, one, in, one in each, each of those birds, one was offered as a sin offering. The other one was offered as a burnt offering. By the way, we, we're going to talk a lot about with all these mention of offerings in this, in this passage. If you want to know more about offerings, you, you have to study Leviticus 1 to 7. Leviticus 1 to 7, those are the, where all these various offerings are described in detail. And you can just read there and try to grasp what uh, the purpose of each of the different offerings. And some of the offerings, they, they t- seem to blend together, but each one can, has, uh, sort of stands out for a particular purpose. The sin offering, uh, described in Leviticus 4, basically pictured uh, death, death that is required for whenever there is sin. And the burnt offering that's offered here, Leviticus, according to Leviticus 1, was something... Uh, that needed to, the burnt offering was something that needed to be completely burned up. None of it would be left over, none of it would be given to the priest. It all had to be burned. And that picture was a picture of one's complete surrender to the Lord. And in, the, in this way, when, when these two, two birds were offered, one for a sin offering, one for a burnt offering, that was, that was a way in which the Nazarite's sin, and this way defilement, was atoned for. But at that same day, the Nazarite would then consecrate himself or herself again. They would basically set themselves apart again. They renew their vow 
and they'd start over by offering a third sacrifice, a male one-year-old lamb. So expenses, you have to offer a whole lamb, basically, as a guilt offering. And we looked at guilt offering last week already, but a guilt offering was one, a, a way for man to make restitution for the guilt that they have before the Lord, to, to make restitution to God for his guilt before the Lord. Of course, always pointing to Jesus. But these three offerings were made for inadvertent sin shows basically the holiness of the vow of the Nazarite and the holiness of the God to whom they make the vow to. It was no light matter to just make such a vow. To be devoted in this way was, was to be a complete and total commitment of one's life. And what's more, even a single sin would nullify any service that had already been offered up to this point. The, the Nazareth would have to start over. Everything would, wouldn't even count. You know, you might have served 29 days of a 30-day, 30 30, one-month commitment, and then on that third day, you defile yourself. Oh, you got to start over. In fact, in the Mishnah, which is the uh, Jewish commentary on the law, and the recounts a, a story of a queen, a Gentile queen, who became a Jewish convert. Uh, her name was Queen Helena. And she had made a seven-year vow. And it's, uh, it says in the Mishnah that after, right near the end of her seven-year vow, she had become richly defiled. And so, therefore, she served another seven years because the, all those six, and, uh, the near seven years did not count towards her vow. She had to serve another seven years, which she did. And so there, there's a little debate about whether she served 14 years or 21 years, but uh, there you have it. She was a, that's, that was a, picture, a story of the, how the exacting uh, demand that God has for those who make the vow of a Nazarite, what it would take to restore to a life of holiness, a life of dedication. That the Lord states this aspect of the law of the Nazarite is then ins- very instructive for the people of God. It's very instructive because he, he wants them to know that you're going to make vow, you're going to have those who make the vow of a Nazarite, but even those who are holy, set apart, Nazarites, will at times, will become defiled, they will sin, they will fail, and there needs to be some way in which they are restored to their vow which they make, restored to a life of holiness. And we remind too that though we too are called to be holy, I think all of us understand that we too fall short. Now, yes, we don't make a vow, uh, we have not made, but we all fall short, even knowing that God's called us to a life of holiness. No one can be holy as God is holy. No one can be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. We're all sinners by nature who manifest sin in our, in our thoughts, our words, and actions. It's only in Christ that we're enabled to, to not sin, but still often there are times in the flesh that we choose to give in to sin. But the Lord's instruction reminds the people of God that God makes a way for us to be restored to a holiness. Restored to a life of holiness. Perhaps the most well-known Nazarite in the Bible was Samson. Uh, I know that I, it's probably that because I know my, many of my kids' Bible, our children's Bibles, they always have the story of Samson. It's like a, the most popular story, you know. Uh, everybody likes the story of Samson for whatever reason, even though he's probably the, the worst of all the judges, right? Um, uh, probably because there's something about him that we can relate to. But uh, in Judges chapter 13, we read about the announcement of his birth by the angel of the Lord in Judges 13. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman, uh, that is uh, Samson's mother, and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive 
and give birth to a son. Now therefore be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So Samson was, was set apart by God to be a Nazarite from, not just from his birth, but from his conception. From his conception. By the way, that that's just speaks to the, the value, of the, how God sees life in the womb, okay? But that's, you know, we're not, that's, that's, a, that's just an aside. And God calls him to be a Nazarite. Therefore, even his mom is told not to drink any wine or strong drink so as to not affect uh, his, uh, his vow as a Nazarite. So Samson was a holy Nazarite to God. And the Lord, in the end, does use Samson to deliver Israel from the Philistines, just as he uh, told his mother. But if you are familiar with the story of Sam, mighty Samson, then you know that he was anything but a holy Nazarite. He failed completely. Um, you know, just think about, uh, if you read a story, you'll find that he's often involved in feasts. And feasts were, uh, feasts were um, you know, commonly where, where wine would be served and he would participate. Then you know that uh, uh, there, were to- there were many times you read a story and he's surrounded by death. He's not afraid to, to kill things, kill animals, kill lions, kill people, hundreds of people, just to get their, uh, their garments. This, he was a violent man, um, and uh, uh, not a you know someone who was probably fearful to be around that guy. He uh, he was exposed to death, and then of course, uh, the most probably well known of all, he he allowed his hair to be cut. And so Samson's life, he did not keep his vows. He fa- he failed miserably in keeping. And his mom probably would have taught him and uh, about the vows, or he would have learned about the vows from the from the priest. But he completely failed in, his, uh, in keeping his vows. He, was not a holy, he did not live a life of holiness. And though he received the, the consequences of his sin, remember he, was, um, he was, had his eyes blinded, he was, uh, he was enslaved and, uh, and imprisoned. Uh, but even then, the Lord um, provided a way of restoration for him. The Lord allowed him a second chance. And in the end, Samson, as, he, as his hair grew back and restored, he became a restored holy instrument of God. And he delivered Israel with his last final act. He put, knocked down the pillars of, that, of the building in which all the Philistine leaders were basically crushed underneath it along with Samson. Samson's story is, in many ways, our story. It's a story of someone whom... Uh, when, in though God may call us a life of holiness, there are times when we fail, we fall short, or we give into sin, we give into our own the, the the pleasures of life, and we don't live for Him. How many of us are are, are living like Samson, living for life, the world, the pleasures? We're not living for God, as He ought to have done. But thankfully, God, our God, is a God of second chances. He made a way for the Nazarite to be restored, and God makes, of course, a way for you and I to be restored to a life of holiness through confession of sins. God is faithful and just to forgive us. You know, when we sin, he doesn't want us to just quit and give up. Just say, oh, I can't live this life of holiness. God knows that. God knows you cannot live a perfect holy life. That's why he sent you his son. 
And so when you fail, go back to Jesus. Go back for the way, the, the provision for your restoration through his death on the cross. And renew your, renew, like the Nazarite. Don't go literally cutting your head off, hair off, but just, you know, think about it. You can start again, just like the Nazarite did. Third and final aspect of the law of the Nazarite then details the rituals involved in the completion of a vow of a Nazarite. And we see this, the completion of a life of holiness. This, is, this, is, this section is real instructive for us as well. We read verse 13 to 20. Now this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are fulfilled, he shall bring the offering to the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall present his offering to the Lord, one male lamb a year old without defect for a burnt offering, one ewe lamb a year old without defect for a sin offering, and one ram without defect for a peace offering, and a basket of unleavened cakes of his fine flour mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers spread with oil, along with their grain offering and their drink offering. Then the priest shall present them before the Lord and shall offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. He shall also offer the ram for a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, together with the basket of unleavened cakes. The priest shall likewise offer its grain offering and its drink offering. The Nazarite shall then shave his dedicated head of hair at the doorway of the tent of meeting and take the dedicated hair of his head and put it in the fire which is under the sacrifice of peace offerings. The priest shall take the ram's shoulder when it has been boiled and one unleavened cake out of the basket and one unleavened wafer and shall put them on the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved his dedicated hair. Then the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. It is holy for the priest, together with the breast offered by waving and the thigh offered by lifting up. And afterward, the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite, who vows his offering to the Lord according to his separation in addition to what else he can afford, according to his vow which he takes, so he shall do according to the law of his separation. For many Nazarites, their vows were, according to the, the many references here to the, all the days of their separation, their vow was a temporary offering. It would be for a specific number of days. Even this whole instruction about what happens when you complete your vow, it tells us that many of the vows were, were for a short period of time or a set period of time. And when these dates were fulfilled, it was, completed by an, it was completed with an offering. And by the way, not just one offering, but, but a whole plethora of offerings, four main types of offering, but really five offerings are mentioned here. There's a male lamb for a burnt offering, a female lamb for a sin offering, a ram for a peace offering. There's the, there's the grain offering, and then there's the drink offering as well, five different offerings mentioned. See, the, and so the Nazarite was to bring all these offerings that, uh, at the completion of his or her uh, vow and bring it to the tent of meeting, that is to present it to the Lord. So here they are, once after having devoted their life to service to the Lord, and when the vow was completed then, then they would come and bring offerings to God. Even <laughs> as, a, as, a, as an act of worship. Again, these, the details of these offerings are all found in Leviticus 1-7. to the burnt offering symbolized the total commitment required of the worshiper of God. The sin offering reminded the Israelite of the cost for, uh, of, of life for whenever there was sin. The peace offering uh, comes out of Leviticus 3, reminded the worshiper of the peace that one has with God, uh, uh, with the Lord, because of, uh, because of, of, uh, of the sacrifices that are, that are offered in their place. Significant about the peace offering in Leviticus 3 is that it is the only offering 
in which the worshiper, having offered it, could actually partake a portion of the meat sacrifice that was uh, lost. They would get some meat back, which they could then eat of. It was a meal in a sense. This peace offering is often sometimes called the fellowship offering because they're, in a sense, they're having peace or fellowship with the Lord. So even as they've offered to the Lord to partake, they then take a bit to partake themselves. It's as if it's a meal with the Lord, a meal with God. It's a meal that the worshiper shares with him because God has made the way to, so that he would have fellowship with the Lord. Uh, this will, and it's, uh, in Leviticus 3, it seems to be that this meal, this peace offering meal, would be often involved inviting friends and family to also partake in the meal as well. And then, of course, there's uh, the grain offering, the drink offering. The grain offering was, uh, since it comes, it doesn't involve blood, but it grain comes out of the harvest. And a lot of the grain offering, harvest offerings, were often a reminder that God provides all that you need. That, the, that, which you, that which you need is provided by the Lord, whether it's food, whether it's spiritual needs. Uh, and then and when, in many of these offerings, there would be offering of drink. Uh, wine uh, was uh, the, most, uh, the common form and all offered up to God. Then with, with the offerings made, uh, then the, the Nazarite would cut off his or her hair at the doorway to the tent of meeting, and remember the hair that had been growing this whole time as a symbol of their life of devotion, would then be basically offered up in the fire with, along with the, the portion of the, peace off, the fire for the peace offering. It would symbolize the, uh, the dedicated life of the Nazareth that had been offered and given to the Lord. It would be, their hair would be cut off and given to, to the Lord as a symbol. Verse 19 20 describes the details of that peace offering, the meal. A portion of offering is weighed by the priest. The priest gets to keep a part of it. And then the rest, uh, is, uh, some, of his, uh, uh, some of it is burned, and, and some of his, the, the Nazarite is allowed to, to participate. But most importantly, you notice the Nazarite is allowed to drink wine again. Again, see, wine is not evil, right? It's, it's even, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's, you know <laughs> uh, it's not necessarily an evil thing. Um, it's, it's evolved, even it was used in the, in the, particip- in the worship of God. The Nazarite would presumably then celebrate and eat the remainder of the peace offering with his family and friends, rejoicing over uh, basically over a period of life devoted to the Lord. The whole process is, is, is detailed. It's, it's full of ritual. It's, all, it's, full of, uh, it's just full of all this, uh, of, of, of various offerings and, and symbolism, even in the, in the cutting of the hair and the particular meal. It's a celebration. It's a worship celebration, really. And you think about it, when it comes to the life of, uh, the life of, uh, of uh, even, even in, our, in our lives, there are significant moments of life when they come to an end, we, we, we make a, a, a great fuss about it. We make, we go, there's much ado about it. For instance, uh, graduations, or we make a big fuss about that stuff. Uh, in universities, I just, you know, if, uh, I just rejoice this, this, this past week, I heard from Pastor Roger, you know, he'd been studying for his doctoral degree in biblical counseling, and he just feeded, completed his, his doctoral defense. So that pretty much means he has to, he's near completion. He's going to graduate in December, and you can just start calling him doctor, but you can just rejoice with him uh, if you wish, or you can call him Raj, like many of us still do. Um, but when he graduates, in graduations, you're going to find out there's, a, there's all these uh, involvement. You know, you get to wear fancy robes. You get to wear funny square hats you, you know, with little things hanging down, little tassels, you know. What it's all about, you get to, uh, 
you, um, you get to walk down in, in a certain procession. Then you get to walk over stage. Then they give you a little funny scroll. And then you give you, sometimes they give you a plaque. There's, there's pictures taken. And of course, there's, there's family and friends that are gathered. And then there's celebrations. There's meals. Uh, because graduations are significant moments. And even more significant uh, are the, 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 the completion of a, of a life devoted to the Lord. The completion of a, of a vow that was made. The whole process is a picture of, of worship, giving glory. Offerings are worship. The hair offered back to the Lord in the peace offering fire is worship. The, the sharing the meal is, is worship. It's all worship. It's all giving glory to God because the Nazarite could only live such a holy life because of God, because of the Lord God. Who, think about it. Who could live such a life of total commitment to the Lord? None of us on our own could. Apart from the Lord's payment for sin, apart from, as, as far as from the Lord's provision for what they would need to, to keep their vows, apart from the, the peace that God has enabled them uh, so that, uh, so that uh, they could have uh, fellowship and peace with the Lord, no one could keep the vow uh, of a life of holiness. All would fall short of God's standard. And we know this to be true because the Bible, from beginning to end, shows us that man, the one characteristic of man is that he is a sinner. We see it, we think of, uh, you know, passing the New Testament, we, there the Old Testament passage that talks about this too. 1 Kings 8.46 talks about, there is no man who does not sin. Proverbs 29 asks rhetorically, who can say I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin? No one. No one can. For the worshiper of God then and the worship of God now, the law of, Nazareth, of the Nazarite teaches us that a life of holiness is only possible through the Lord. It's only possible because with the Lord's help, with the Lord's grace. Because of sin, we, we all need to make payment, a payment for our sin, which we could not pay. Because of sin, we all need the provision of spiritual enablement to, to be live holy lives. None of us would choose to do it on our own without peace with God. In fact, we could do all sorts of things in the name of God, but without peace, without a right relation with God, without fellowship with God, as Isaiah writes in Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment before the Lord. That's what it would be like. And in Revelation 4, we, we learn then that the redeemed are going to be just like the Nazarites, at the end of our lives, at the end of all time in history, when all is said and done, when all our lives that were called to be holy are brought to completion, and we all stand before the Lord, and, and, or at least before the Lord as those who are redeemed, all with, uh, and I take that, uh, by the way, I take the redeemed to be the 24 elders to be the redeemed in Revelation 4. We learn that the redeemed will one day, clothed in white, crowned with gold, Received from the Lord, will offer worship to God. Look at Revelation 4, 10, 11. The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who, who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and they were created. See, the, 
the redeemed in that day will offer their worship because all things come from the Lord. Everything. God provides everything. God made the world. God made us. God gives us his spirit. God gives us his son. He gives us all things come from him. Salvation is of the Lord and holiness is of the Lord. And what our lives will produce is going to be the result of his provision of all things. We can do nothing apart from him, apart from Jesus. One day, we cannot stand before him unless our sins have been paid for by Jesus. We, will not have, we cannot have any peace with him or fellowship with him apart from Jesus. And so that's why one day, when we stand with him with those white garments that, by the way, are provided by the Lord, and with crowns of gold, which we've purchased, in a sense, from the Lord, all these things that the Lord has given us enables, makes us look fine. We will then join with the redeemed and cast our crowns before the Lord. And say, Lord, you are worthy. It's not my life. We're not going to go to the Lord and say, Lord, did, were you pleased by my life? Did, did you like how I preached those sermons for those years? Did you like how I, I served the body of Christ for all those years? Did you like how I really sacrificially loved my wife and family, my husband, my kids? Did you, did you like how I did that? We're not going to be looking for that kind of praise from the Lord. He may give us praise. But in the end of the day, all that may be our glory, we're just going to cast before the Lord and offer him glory and honor and power and praise and worship because our completion of a life of holiness is not possible, could never be possible without him, without him. And we will, when the completion of all things takes place, God will receive all the glory. Just as the Nazarite, and so we so for us. The law of the Nazarite then reminds us, uh, brothers and sisters, of the life of holiness that ought to characterize the people of God. He gave, them, he gave the law of Nazarite for the Israel to know that they need to be holy, and he gave the law of Nazarite so that we would know that we as the people of God, holy nation, need to be holy. But the main emphasis in this passage, though it is a call to holiness, it's not primarily a call to holiness, but rather it is a recognition of our own inability to live a life of holiness. That's why God gives the rules about restoration. That's why God gives this, the laws, rituals about what you should do when it's brought to completion. Don't praise yourself. Bring your worship to the Lord. Pray and praise to God. And that's the, that's the lesson that we learn from the law of the Nazareth, that we need God's grace when we fail to live a life of holiness. We need God's grace to fulfill a life of holiness. And at the end of our lives, hopefully, we will have lived a life that generally reflects a life of holiness, a life of Christ. And in that day, when God calls us uh, to before his presence, we will give praise to the Lord for making it all possible. Of course, he made it possible through his son. His son, who did not need to abstain from wine, turned that water to wine. His son, who did not need to abstain from cutting his hair. His son did not need to refrain from touching the dead. But in fact, he touched them and raised them to life. And he did not abstain from any of these things. And yet, Jesus was the holy son of God. It's not these rituals that make one holy. It's the life lived in perfect obedience and submission to the Lord. And Jesus, the holy son of God, lives such a life. A life that none of us could live on our own so that he could then offer his life once and for all as a payment for our sins. And his offering on the life of his life on the cross was the fulfillment of every single offering that we find in the Old Testament. Every would be made among Israel. And his death saves us and sets us apart 
for his service. Not necessarily as Levites, nor, nor as, uh, as Nazarites, but as a, the church of Jesus Christ. A people, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation that we would live for him. And may God help us to live in, in dependence upon his grace in the days ahead to be such a nation. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, your word and these uh, instruction about the law of the Nazarite. Lord, thank you that, uh, that these laws are, are, um, are written down for the instruction of your people, uh, that we might learn the life of holiness that you call your people to be. And, and even as we learn from these, these, uh, these aspects of this law, we see, Lord, even our own call uh, to a life of holiness, but our own inability. But thank you, Lord, for making it possible through your provision of your son, through your provision of all things that we need. We pray that when this life is over, that you will, have, you will be glorified through our life, and that one day when we receive our crowns, that we would join with all the redeemed in casting them before you. And Lord, may until then help us to be faithful, help us to be dependent upon you uh, for the lo- to be a living and holy sacrifice that you call us to be. Uh, Lord, we thank you for our Savior. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.